Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's Wednesday. You are halfway through the week, unless you are a U.S. Senator, in which case there's a chance you're going to be working this weekend, wrapping up that bipartisan infrastructure bill. This is Sound On. I am Emily Wilkins filling in for Joe today. Also this hour, we're going to head to Ohio, where two primary races last night offer clues about what the 2020 midterms can look like. And in just a minute, we'll be chatting with New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky about what happens next with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Well, we're going to head up to New York now a day after New York Attorney General Letitia James announced a damning report on Governor Andrew Cuomo's history of sexual harassment. Cuomo is still the governor of New York, despite multiple calls for him to resign, including from members of his own party, as well as former allies like President Joe Biden. Uh, joining us now to sort of break down what has happened and what we are expecting next is Keisha Kluke, the New York State correspondent for Bloomberg Industries. Keisha, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I just wanted to start by seeing if you could give us a bit of an overview of the last 24 hours. We heard that report. We heard what a lot of people have chalked up as a very awkward uh, explanation, if you will, uh, from Governor Cuomo trying to defend himself. What's the mood in Albany right now? I, th I think the real uh, mood is, is more of a waiting game. How long can Governor Cuomo wait before resigning, or does the legislature need to move forward with impeachment proceedings? Um, and so it's kind of been... Uh, Quiet today from the Cuomo administration. We haven't heard much from them. Um, there's been rumors flying throughout the day of, you know, maybe an announcement, maybe not. He's he's likely meeting with um, consultants and, and people who are close to him. Um, meanwhile, we have people coming out more and more in droves um, asking him to resign, calling on the state legislature to just move forward with the impeachment proceedings. And most notably, we saw the state Democratic Party chairman, uh, Jay Jacobs, who stood behind Cuomo throughout this um, and said, you know, let's really wait and see. He today came out and said, you know what? Nope, we need him to resign. And uh, from reports, Jay Jacobs has uh, asked Cuomo and Cuomo said no. So <laughs> it really uh, is, is sort of a all on Cuomo at this point. Wow. Wow. I'm surprised, you know, to, to hear that Cuomo apparently said that he wouldn't yet. I mean, given the amount of pressure that is on him, the number of people that have called for him to resign. I mean, at, at this point, Akisha, what's even the path forward here? I mean, if it seems like if we've got close allies like Jay Jacobs coming out and calling on Cuomo to resign, it, it seems almost inevitable that he's going to be removed as governor. And so at this point, what's sort of the calculation going forward? Well, there's actually already an investigation by the State Assembly Judiciary Committee 
uh, which is the lower house in the uh, state system, which has been looking into uh, just a host of issues, ranging from the sexual harassment to issues with, um, you know, bridge infrastructure, Cuomo's book deal and how he made the money and potential misused public funds. Um, The list goes on and on. Um, Now, they started that um, in March, and it's still ongoing. The state assembly speaker has said they're going to take the AG's information into account. However, they're going to continue to proceed um, as swiftly as possible. Uh, They have a meeting scheduled for Monday, and I think we're expecting hopefully to hear some sort of timeline on that. The state's uh, impeachment process, however, hasn't been used since 1913, and the Constitution is pretty vague on how it uh, how it works. It gives a lot of leeway to the lawmakers. Uh, theoretically, the Assembly Committee at some point would come out with their findings. If they decide to impeach Cuomo, they would then uh, put those findings to the body as a whole. The Assembly could vote to impeach Cuomo, at which point the lieutenant governor would take over as acting governor, and it would then go to the state Senate and the highest court of appeals would kind of weigh in as, as jury and judge um, to decide whether or not, uh, you know, to, to fully um, convict Cuomo. Well, Keisha, it sounds like this is going to potentially be a story that plays out for a while if Cuomo isn't going to resign and impeachment proceedings begin. Uh, Thank you for breaking that down for us. That was Keisha Kluke, uh, the New York State correspondent with Bloomberg Industries. Now we want to bring in another uh, figure in New York, big figure in Albany, New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky. Uh, Senator, thank you so much for, for taking the time and joining us today. Um, You know, you were chatting with our colleague David Weston earlier today, and you said that the report on Cuomo was damning and nauseating. Uh, You also uh, told David Weston that you don't know yet when the impeachment proceedings might begin. But is there any doubt at this time that the New York Assembly will remove him if Governor Cuomo doesn't resign on his own? Yeah, there's there's no doubt that they are going to act to impeach and impeaching would by law trigger his immediate temporary removal until such time as the trial has concluded. Every assembly member I've talked to of all different stripes, um, geographically, party wise, uh, have all said that, that that impeachment is the only path that they are prepared to take. So I expect that to happen swiftly. And frankly, in light of what other prosecutors offices are doing around the state from Albany to where I live in Nassau, you know, it, I don't mean to uh, make light of it, but impeachment may be, you know, uh, not on the top of the list of the governor's biggest concerns right now. There's a lot of other things happening right now, but impeachment looks in. Yeah, I know we were just hearing there from Keisha sort of how there were all these other things that were being investigated into the governor from his book deals. I know there's still a lot of concern about the nursing homes. Uh, Senator, I'm a little confused. I mean, I'm not a New Yorker. I'm not from New York, but I find it really surprising that Andrew Cuomo has not yet resigned after so many calls to do so after, as you just point out, it seems inevitable. I mean, why why has he not done that yet? And do you think that's something we should expect him to do either later today or at some point this week? I, I he, Look, he's a political brawler, and I don't think he's going to give up and quit until there's absolutely zero daylight and zero chance left for survival. And so to what that means to me is if the assembly is moving to impeach, and there's a vote at 4 o'clock to do that, and by 3.30, he's not able to change anyone's vote. You know, 3.31 might be a change of opinion in his mind as to what is left. But he's not going—I don't think anyone should hold their breath that he's going to go 
anywhere unless the assembly moves swiftly and strongly. I've urged them to do that. It looks like they are doing that. Um, you know, what that timeline is is up to them. I hope they move expeditiously, uh, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to take strong action on their part. Got it. I mean, you said you think they'll move swiftly and expeditiously. Is this something we could see uh, begin within the next week, within the next couple of weeks? I mean, how yeah, long? I, I, I expect news to come out of the Assembly Monday when their committee meets. They will form, you know, they will formulate their plan. And I think one of the big questions is what are they going to be relying on? I'm urging them, as others are, to just rely on the attorney general's report. There certainly is fertile ground for to look at other things that they were doing, but uh, I think what the attorney general presented was thorough, comprehensive, professional, and overwhelming. The evidence was overwhelmingly damning. So I think that should mean the assembly should only have to say, here's the AG's report. We're now putting into evidence. This is what we're relying on. We're now moving forward. I also want to take a step back and look at some of the broader concerns with Governor Cuomo uh, in regards to the, the other investigations that are going on with him. I mean, if he is removed from the governorship, do those investigations need to continue into various deals he's made and how he's handled the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, if you are a U.S. attorney's office like I used to work in or a prosecutor's office, I was also an ADA. I don't think that should be a concern. There's evidence. And if there is evidence of wrongdoing, federal criminal wrongdoing, uh, or, or wrongdoing with respect to sexual assault, you pursue the evidence. You know, I don't think it is just for a prosecutor's office to say, you know, what, we, we were going to go do this. The evidence is there. But now that we, you know, now that it's not going to result in the, in the end of his governorship, we're not going to move forward. You know, that, that doesn't strike me as just. And I don't think those offices are proceeding in that way. I certainly haven't heard that the U.S. Attorney's Office um, is doing anything differently. And frankly, the DA's offices from Albany, Westchester, Manhattan, and Nassau have done the opposite. They're moving forward. I'm also wondering a little bit what the attitude and just the atmosphere is like among you and your colleagues. I mean, I remember around this time last year when the pandemic started, you know, Governor Cuomo was being upheld as someone who was really a voice of clarity and information during a pretty confusing time. His uh, daily pressers were, you know, a big source of news. People listened into them. And now it seems like just a year later, he's now done a complete 180 sort of in public opinion uh, for for new york democrats how have you guys sort of handled that 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 reversal what how are people sort of thinking and handling that i look i i i think that the news of these scandals have now been around for a long time i think we're waiting for the fact-finding report that has no come and i think people are rendering judgment accordingly based on the overwhelming nature of the facts i do think it is particularly stunning that the governor had all this attention on him like the whole country was watching him. And then, you know, when the camera lights would go out, would go off, you know, according to this report, he would then go back into his office and commit sexual harassment. So I think it's just a stunning display of feeling untouchable or above the law that when you know everyone is looking at your every move because you've become so famous and so central to the, you know, story of what's happening in the country that you still act this way. You know, there's no excuse to act this way ever, but to do it under those circumstances, I think is a straw drop. Sure. And, and I know we only have about a minute or so left, but one of the things we always try and do in the news is be thinking one step ahead. Um, certainly, you know, there might be a, a bit of a process here in regards to removing Governor Cuomo if he does not resign. But are people already thinking about who might replace Governor Cuomo? Is there going to be an election? Is there going to be a, sort of a chance for other people to step up into his spot? 
Well, I mean, by law, the lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, would be the governor. And she would then get to appoint a lieutenant governor. So I think they're, um, you know, she's been around a while. Lots of people know her. She spends a lot of time down where I am on Long Island. I think many people like her and find her to be competent. I I certainly do. Um, But I think first things first. I think it's time for the assembly to act and then everything else will follow. That was New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky. Uh, Senator, thank you again so much for joining us. In a minute here, we're going to continue to break down what's going on in New York and elsewhere throughout the country, including Ohio, and what's up with the infrastructure bill. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon. This is Emily Wilkins, your guest host today on Sound On. We just heard from New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky on what the future of Governor Andrew Cuomo looks like. And according to him, it's either Cuomo resigns or the state assembly goes ahead and impeaches Cuomo, which, unlike D.C., means that Cuomo will actually be removed from office. We now want to break it down further with Bloomberg contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. Uh, Thank you both for, for joining me today. Uh, I wanted to start off with one of the interesting things that we heard from Senator Kaminsky, uh, just just that he doesn't expect Cuomo to really back down until the very last minute, that he's not going to resign until there aren't sort of any other options left. Uh, But Jeannie, is there any chance at this point that Cuomo will remain as as governor? Given the number of people who have come out and opposed him, it, it almost doesn't seem like he has any sort of path forward to remain in power. Yeah, I mean, I was struck in your interview with Senator Kaminsky when he said there's no doubt he will be impeached and temporarily removed. Um, I suppose in life there's always a chance, but it is beginning slimmer by the moment that he can overcome this at this point. But I do agree with Senator Kaminsky, and I'm a New Yorker, I live in New York, and I've followed you know, Governor Cuomo throughout all three of his runs for office um, and his service as governor. He is a political animal. Let's not forget, he has basically been in Albany since he was a teenager, first with his father, then serving in HUD, then coming back as attorney general. He knows Albany well. He is a political animal and he will fight this to the end. So I do think it is going to take not just the impeachment, but it is going to take a guilty verdict in the trial to get him out of that office if you know I don't suspect he will resign unless that seems like it is going to happen any minute and then he will may consider resigning but I I think it's highly unlikely and Rick, I also wanted to, to ask you a little bit as well. You know, New York, they've got sort of everything going on now with Cuomo. But even if somehow Cuomo survives, that doesn't sound very likely. There's a governor's race in 2022. And, you know, New York, they have uh, it's often th- thought of as a, as a very solid blue state, very solidly Democratic state. But they have had Republican governors in the past. And I'm wondering, sort of given Cuomo's conduct and the scandal around him at this point, could this give Republicans an opening to win the New York governorship in 2022? Well, it for sure gives uh, Republicans an opening, right? It didn't, it, we would then have to nominate someone in the mold of sort of a George Pataki, who was the last Republican governor, who can appeal to moderate voters uh, but still get the base in the upstate. And so 
Uh, it does create an opening, no question about it, Emily, that uh, Republicans right now are looking at this as an opportunity to try and pick up an a important state like New York. Um, but um, uh, right now, I think all eyes are on Cuomo. Uh, the, the, the worse it gets, the better it is for Republicans. Uh, and I would say, as Jeannie mentioned, I think that Cuomo is in a position of trying to make it as hard on everybody else as he can while he clings to power for, you know, another few months. And it sounds like uh, it's not just the, the sexual harassment report, but a number of other things uh, that could not bode well for, for Governor Cuomo or, or for Democrats. I also do want to take a minute because obviously it is still such a major story and touch on the latest with the COVID-19 virus. You are starting to hear frustration uh, from officials over individuals who aren't getting vaccinated, who are pushing against vaccines. Uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, uh, lashed out at some folks today who were refusing to get the coronavirus vaccine. He was in the middle of talking about a completely unrelated topic in Union City when he noticed protesters at his event were carrying signs objecting to mandatory vaccinations. These folks back there have lost their mind. You've lost your minds. You are the ultimate knuckleheads. And because of what you are saying and standing for, people are losing their life. Obviously, very, very fiery right there, but it kind of goes in line with what we heard from President Biden earlier this week, who said that governors who were banning mask mandates need to get out of the way for businesses and for schools. I mean, Jeannie, as we sort of see some of these tensions hit a boiling point over vaccines, is there any sort of concern about how that's going to impact those who aren't vaccinated and don't want to get vaccinated? Will outbursts like this ultimately hurt or, or help the cause here? You know, it, I, it, I was so glad you played that clip. Um, it, it's quite stunning, and I can understand. You can hear it in Governor Murphy's voice, the frustration he feels. We've heard it from Democratic governors. We've heard it from Republican governors as well. I think back to Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, you know, to, and, and her, her statement, you know, a few weeks ago, I guess it was, or, or a few days ago. But that said, I don't think this is productive. What we know from the research on people who are concerned Concerned about getting vaccinated is they're not responding well to either threats nor to criticism like that. They want to hear from people they know and they trust. They want their views to be respected. So, you know, I'm not sure this is particularly productive on the part of the governor, although I can understand his frustration because the last thing he or any of us want is to go back to where we were a year ago, shutting down businesses. And I think the governors and the mayors are trying very hard to avoid that. Absolutely. And we're already seeing so much of that right now with the mask mandates that have been coming back, with now hearing that there are going to be mandatory vaccinations at certain companies, as well as New York, announcing them for certain areas as well. So it definitely seems like there's still a group of individuals who aren't vaccinated and who are very much against vaccinations. Well, coming up next, we're going to go to Ohio, take a look at two special elections that happened there and what they can tell us about the midterms. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. It's not 2022 yet, but those of us in D.C. know it is always election season. We break down some special primary elections from last night, getting details about what the 2022 midterms could look like. Well, last night. Both Democrats and Republicans had their eyes on Ohio and two primary races for special elections that could offer a clue as to how the midterm primaries will go when they begin next spring and summer. To go through what we saw and really break it down, we're here with Mark Niquette, Bloomberg National Political Correspondent. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start in Columbus, where coal industry consultant and lobbyist Mike Carey defeated 10 other candidates in a Republican primary for a seat uh, formerly held by Republican Steve Strivers. It was a win not only for Kerry, but also for former President Donald Trump, who endorsed him. Can you talk a little bit just about the race and how much Trump's endorsement factored into this? Because I, I think right now one of the big questions for 2022 is how much of a kingmaker Trump still is within the Republican Party, even after losing the presidency in 2020. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in um, this race and what role Trump's endorsement would play, because it, it looked to be kind of a good test of that, uh, because you had uh, Mike Carey, Trump's endorsed candidate, um, who had never uh, held elective office before. He was sort of known in Ohio politics. He was a longtime coal industry lobbyist um, and was, you know, sort of known in um, Republican politics, uh, but he was running against um, better-known candidates. It was a, a crowded field of uh, 11 candidates, and you had a, a state senator who represented part of the district for uh, a number of years. Uh, you had a couple of state representatives, um, you know, who had sort of a natural base, um, and they were also endorsed by prominent uh, folks like uh, uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul endorsed a former state representative who was in the field. Uh, Steve Stivers uh, endorsed a state representative uh, that he wanted to sort of see take take over the seat from him. Um, so we had sort of these competing endorsements, and the question was whether Trump's uh, endorsement of Kerry would would uh, hold sway, particularly after um, his endorsed candidate lost uh, Susan Wright in the the Texas special election uh, runoff last week. Um, and by all accounts, uh, it, it looks like Trump's endorsement did carry the day. Uh, Kerry won very comfortably. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, district that has all the parts of 12 counties um, in central Ohio, and Kerry won all but one of the counties. Um, um, and, uh, so, and, it, and again, it looks like you know, Trump's endorsement was, was the major reason why you know, Kerry was able to win as comfortably as he did. 
Absolutely. I also want to make sure that we're touching on the other big primary in Northeast Ohio. Uh, this one was one that Democrats were keeping a very close eye on between an establishment-backed candidate, Chantel Brown, who won her race against Nina Turner, who was backed by progressives, including Senator Bernie Sanders. And after winning, Brown said that she would be able to work with others in D.C. We have the sound from that speech. Potentially the next member of the 11th Congressional District, the next member of Congress, I can walk in the door with good relationships. I have earned the support of people on the Hill. You know, Mark, this one was so interesting because we really saw a lot of endorsements from Congress, both for Brown as well as for Turner. And we've seen the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They've made gains in 2018. They made gains in 2020. They've really been growing. The, the squad's been growing in size. Is there a sense that, that 2022 might break this trend based on how Turner did last night? It's hard to say. I mean, one of the caveats from, from both of the special election races in Ohio uh, yesterday was that these were very low turnout races uh, held at the beginning of August when everybody's on vacation and nobody's paying much attention to politics. Um, so it's it's hard to draw definitive um, uh, assessments of what this might mean for for 2022. But um, I think it, it is sort of it has to be discouraging for uh, the progressives that you know they they had a candidate in Nina Turner who was well known. Um, and liked in the, in the Cleveland area in this district, uh, who was not able to win this race. Um, she wanted to blame the outside money that um, poured into the district, particularly at the end of the race, uh, for, for her defeat. Um, but it was sort of a, a clear opportunity for uh, Nina Turner and the progressives to pick up the seat. And in fact, she started the race with quite a hefty lead in the polls uh, and just wasn't able to you know, carry it out and, and, and win at the end. I mean, is there any sense as to why Turner did start with the lead that she had and why she wasn't able to maintain it? Is it just a matter here of progressive versus moderate ideas, or is was there something more complex going on with the campaign? No, like I said, I think she was very well known. You know, so at the start of the race, she had a little bit of an advantage, um, you know, particularly with, with with name ID. But you know, uh, Chantel Brown, who, who won the race, you know, was was also known in the district and. And actually had connections with sort of the uh, the party machinery. She was the uh, is the uh, Cuyahoga County Democratic Party chairperson, uh, and also sits on the the county council. Um, so she has connections in in Democratic politics in Cleveland and in that district. Um, uh, so, you know, th th there are other factors too. Just besides, you know, everyone wants to focus on this this proxy fight, and clearly that was that was an element of what was going on here. Um, but you also had sort of, you know, sort of your uh, nuts and bolts politics going on too, with you know each each of the, the the two competing candidates here, you know, having their own sort of factions of support within a district. Mm -hmm. Mark, I also did want to ask you very quickly because I want to acknowledge that these are primary races. They're not general races. I mean, obviously, we're, we're taking a look at the Democrats and the Republicans in these race because that's the party that has the seats. Is there a chance very quickly here, I think we've only got 30 seconds left, that either of these seats could potentially flip in the special election? Not the 11th district seat in Cleveland. I think thinking is that district is so solidly Democratic, you know, there's no risk really there. But the Democrats seem to think that there's a shot with the 15th district seat in, in the Columbus area. 
the Democratic nominee there, uh, State Representative Allison Russo, uh, has run very strongly uh, in Republican areas, and the Democrats think at least they have a shot in that district. It's a, uh, a heavily Republican district. I think it's R plus nine. Um, but I think there's certainly going to be some, some effort made for the Democrats to flip that seat. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. That was Mark McKett, the Bloomberg National Political Correspondent. Well, coming up, we're going to check in on how infrastructure is going in the Senate. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It is Emily Wilkins guest hosting in for Joe today. Well, it is infrastructure summer, as we know, in Washington, D.C., and it continues today as senators work through amendments to that bipartisan infrastructure bill. They've got to go through that before the bill can finally get to the stage where they can vote on it and pass it to the House. Among some changes that could be coming to the bill are an amendment that would narrow a cryptocurrency revenue-raising plan that would help pay for the infrastructure parts of the proposal. It's still unclear exactly when the bill would pass, but Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin said he is getting, quote, good vibrations that the Senate can conclude debate and vote on an infrastructure bill either this weekend or perhaps on Monday. Senator Durbin spoke earlier today with Bloomberg's David Weston. We're getting good vibrations on the floor. Uh, And I think this weekend is likely to see us conclude the debate and voting on this measure as soon as the weekend, as late as Monday. Uh, So let's talk about what's left over after infrastructure. There's a reconciliation, a budget resolution reconciliation that was expected to come after that at some point. What goes into reconciliation that you cannot put in this bipartisan bill? And particularly are some things like immigration that you can get done or can't get done with reconciliation? Well, it remains to be seen exactly what you can put in reconciliation. Final decisions made by the Senate parliamentarian as to what's allowable. But the different categories that we are considering include uh, two years of education for kids uh, before uh, kindergarten, two years of community college or college education after 12th grade, uh, money to help for uh, daycare for children, and immigration is an issue which is the jurisdiction of my committee and one I'm very interested in, in including. Is it conceivable you could have some immigration reform as part of reconciliation? Yes. And in fact, historically, when the Republicans were in control and used reconciliation in the year 2005, they included a provision which expressly uh, addressed H-1B visas, eligibility for citizenship. Uh, And in fact, one of the Republican senators on the committee gave a speech in support of it. So it has been done that way. There is a precedent, but ultimately the parliamentarian has the last word. Joining me now to break down the latest is our panel of experts, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Thank you both so much for for joining me. A lot of interesting stuff there from uh, Majority Whip Dick Durbin. But I'm sort of thinking right now about the process because they mentioned that reconciliation bill there. And obviously to do that reconciliation, they first need to pass a budget resolution. They've got many steps to go. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that they will not be voting on that infrastructure bill in the House until the Senate has also passed that reconciliation bill. And Rick, I sort of wanted to get your thoughts on this. I mean, is that going to be something, how difficult is that going to be 
for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to hold that infrastructure bill that has so much support and tell everyone, hey, we're not passing this in the House yet. We're not going to send it to, to Biden to sign until that reconciliation bill comes, which, which could wind up being a, a month or more from now. Yeah. Uh Nancy Pelosi is putting the entire party and the presidency in jeopardy by uh, connecting uh, a perfectly good bipartisan victory for this administration on infrastructure uh, with a reconciliation bill that um, they'll start debating next week in the Senate that may not even have the support of her own party. So who does she blame? She can only blame Democrats. Uh, the only way reconciliation doesn't happen if Democrats themselves in the Senate decide it's either too expensive or something they don't want to do. If that happens and she won't move the, uh, the infrastructure bill forward, uh, she, has, she can't blame the Republicans for that. They've been very clear that they're not going to vote for this reconciliation package. And tying the two of them just creates jeopardy for uh, a bill that, frankly, should be a huge success and a win for this administration, but also for all Democrats and Republicans. It means that we can actually get bipartisan legislation the country needs through. Absolutely. I mean, on the other flip side of that, too, if Pelosi does try to move that infrastructure bill before the House has a reconciliation package, progressives have said that they will just vote against that infrastructure bill. Now, Jeannie, I don't know sort of if you think that that is a credible threat from the progressives. I mean, we've definitely seen them play hardball in the last few days with the eviction moratorium. But if Speaker Pelosi brings that infrastructure bill to a vote before the reconciliation is there, can you see a number of progressives saying, you know what, we know that this infrastructure bill will be good for our districts, but we're going to vote against it because we want to hold out for more? Well, you know, I think most importantly, if we believe what Nancy Pelosi is saying about tying these two bills, and I believe her, then she believes that they are serious about pulling out. So I think that is really, really telling. And I am very happy to hear Dick Durbin, you know, channeling the Beach Boys with David with this good vibrations that he's got. But the real fight, as you're talking about, is going to be keeping the Democrats together in the House. And that is where Nancy Pelosi is struggling. And she is just a the most recent in a long line of speakers struggling to keep a huge, huge caucus together. And progressives are saying not only on the eviction moratorium, but also on the reconciliation bill in infrastructure that they they are willing to hate play hardball. We heard AOC take on a member of her own party, Kristen Cinema, who said she may not be able to support a 3.5 billion reconciliation bill. So, you know, that is the that is the real challenge here. And I agree with Rick. She she meaning Nancy Pelosi might sink this thing, but I don't think it's just her. I think it is the progressives in the House. If they hold out for the perfect as opposed to going for the good, they threaten to sink this thing for Biden and themselves and the country, quite frankly, which needs this bipartisan deal. And you have seen, you know, in D.C. they sometimes call it hostage taking, but you have seen not just progressives, but a number of groups in the House come out, whether it be the New York and New Jersey Democrats saying that they either need to raise or get rid of the salt tax. Uh, you've heard rural Democrats come out with various concerns about some of the provisions on, uh, on taxing and how it would relate to farmers. You've heard sort of a, a wide number of concerns uh, about uh, the the reconciliation bill and what it will and won't have. And it 
at this point with the makeup of the house it only takes three democrats saying no before something can no longer be passed so speaker pelosi really has a difficult job in front of her here trying to keep everyone on board for this wide-ranging bill rick i also want to touch on another thing that senator durbin mentioned he mentioned the potential for getting immigration into that reconciliation bill and what we've heard from advocates as well from lawmakers is that they want a path forward for dreamers those undocumented immigrants who across the border when they were children usually with their parents they've grown up in the u.s it's really the only country that many of them have ever known and they want to find a way to allow that group to obtain citizenship uh, rick is that something that that's going to be feasible even if it's democrats only who need to sign on and approve it to get it passed yeah, every effort uh, that's been underway for almost a decade to fix the Dreamers issue uh, has failed. And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrats don't take a run at trying to get it into the reconciliation package. Again, Senator Durbin was 100 percent right in uh, what he said, which is the, the authority that will decide that uh, will be the parliamentarian of the Senate. Um, Reconciliation is supposed to be a very narrow, uh, focused kind of legislation uh, uh, that therefore, because it's narrow and has certain limitations to it, doesn't need to uh, uh, adhere to the filibuster rule. And so it's really not up to members themselves. They can take a run at it, and I wouldn't be surprised if they don't. It's, a, it's an exacerbated problem. When many states are now holding referendums on DREAMers, like in Arizona, uh, in order to try and fix the problem on the ballot box. But, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, that, that's actually going to, we'll know sooner than later next week when the parliamentarian rules what's in order or what's out of order. Right. And you remember, too, with uh, the last COVID relief bill, which was also passed through reconciliation by Democrats, they initially sought to include that $15 minimum wage raise. And that got knocked out by the parliamentarian. And even though progressives were really pushing for that to be a part of the final bill, they ultimately accepted that it would not be. And they wound up voting for it in the end. Uh, Jeannie, I want to come to you very quickly here and just talk very quickly about timing, because the Senate was supposed to go on recess starting Monday. Now it looks like that might not happen. What's the pressure on senators to really wrap things up next week? Well, they have pressure because they, of course, as you just said, want to go home for the August recess. The House has already left and it's not scheduled to return until September 20th. I do think the bipartisan bill will likely get through, but it still means this thing does not get to the president, potentially, if it does, for a month and a half probably, or more. So we're looking at the fall. In the meantime, we've got senators and representatives home hearing from constituents, and that's what I am most, you know, sort of interested to see what the feedback is on this, and does this help push this thing through or somehow put the brakes on it, as you and Rick were just talking about. Maybe they're calling for, you know, some more work on immigration or something like that. So I think the constituent feedback is going to be critical as this thing moves through the last few weeks when they get back. Absolutely. And the House members are set to get plenty of it. They're not expected to return at this point until September 20th. So that's seven weeks back home, hearing from their constituents, going to local events. And we're going to continue to follow developments in the Senate and see what happens when this bill goes to the House. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.